0: When did you first start noticing behavior that was concerning to you?
1: After my mother passed away, he became withdrawn. He started hanging out with the wrong crowd. So we moved. Then he started doing better for the most part, but had a lot of depression. I came across a notebook and had some of my son's writing in it. So I went through it, just scanning through it to see if it was garbage or homework or what it was. And that's when I discovered the writing that he did. One was plans to shoot up the school and the other one was plans to kill me and my significant other at the time. I couldn't believe my own eyes.
0: Did you think it was a joke? Did you think it was serious?
1: I think your first instincts when you see something like that, well, mine anyways, is to take it seriously. There was dates. There was times. He planned to do it on the anniversary of Columbine, which I thought was kind of creepy. I have two other children that are young. They're five and four right now. They were, of course, younger at the time. And he said that he was going to take them, put them in the van, and drive them to a secluded area and leave them there.
0: It was back in 2019 that Nicole Schubert, then a healthcare worker living in the Pacific Northwest, discovered her son's journal and the painful possibility that he was about to become the gunman in an all-too-familiar American tragedy. In 2022, there were more than 600 mass shootings in the United States, according to Gun Violence Archive, an independent research group. And right now, the U.S. is on track to surpass those figures in 2023. There's so many these days, it's sometimes hard to remember just how not normal this is. Other countries have even started to warn their own citizens that gun violence makes traveling to the United States a risky proposition.
2: Japan, Uruguay and Venezuela are all issuing alerts.
0: Warning their citizens not to travel to the US because of our violence. Beijing has issued a travel warning for the United States given recent shootings. And this includes the recent mass shootings in Gilroy, El Paso and Dayton. Mass shootings are a form of American exceptionalism that no one can feel proud of. While these shootings have happened in other countries...
2: The government in Serbia has launched a gun amnesty. The move to take guns out of circulation follows two mass shootings in the past week.
0: Those countries have often reacted by cracking down on access to guns, but not the U.S. It's gotten to the point where American kids are accustomed to active shooter drills... The other day, our 11-year-old son came home from school, and my wife, Tresha, noted that he was a little subdued.
3: You were sad when I picked you up.
0: As it turned out, they'd had an active shooter drill at school that day.
4: Yeah, everybody was sad. What if your school had a siren that went off and everybody had to hide? That would be pretty scary. It's somebody with a live weapon coming into your school where you're supposed to learn. It's not fun. So if we're outside on the field, we... Hop over the nearest fence. If we can't do that, we throw rocks, we scratch his eyes. We will do absolutely everything just to distract him, hurt the guy. You guys are thinking of ways to take down the shooter? If there's nothing else that we can do, would you rather get shot running away or would you rather get shot fighting so you can save
0: your friends? None of this is normal, folks. Well, it's become normal, but it's not okay. Every time a mass shooting happens, there are lots of thoughts and prayers, lots of political posturing, and lots of sadness and anger. The US Congress can't seem to do anything meaningful about any of this, and we're stuck. But in our reporting, we came across a new field that's trying to do something to stop mass shootings, and the approach might surprise you. You'll get a rare glimpse inside the FBI's famed behavioral analysis unit where they're trying to identify potential mass shooters to stop them before they can act. I'm Peter Bergen. Welcome to In The Room. Mary O'Toole, was working for the FBI in the 1990s as a criminal profiler when she was assigned to the behavioral analysis unit.
2: Like the other newer profilers, I was told I needed to get a research topic in some area of violent crime. And I heard about these unusual shootings that
0: were occurring in schools. Back then, school shootings were an emerging phenomena. Mary and her team studied just 18 cases. Since then, there, of course, have been many, many, many more cases. And that emerging phenomena has now become a fact of American life.
2: We started to methodically go through them, get all the case materials, interview people. So we were taking our time that all of a sudden Columbine happened. The investigation into the high school massacre is slow moving and dangerous. And Columbine was such a watershed event
0: stalked in their own school by two of their own classmates who went on a rampage you
1: were getting shot all around me <laughs> there was a guy at a table right next in to 1999
0: me. in littleton colorado two students killed 12 of their classmates along with a teacher at columbine high school they wounded more than 20 others then they detonated bombs around the school before taking their own lives it was among the most lethal school shootings in history And it's the episode that seems to have fused school shootings and mass shootings together in America's collective consciousness.
2: I still remember watching it on TV thinking, I don't believe what I'm seeing here. And people were stunned. I remember going back to work the following week. And my boss got a call from the attorney general at the time, and they wanted to know What could the BAU, this elite unit that studies human behavior, what could we do to help?
0: Instead of a topic for her modest research project, this was now a matter of urgent national concern and soul-searching. O'Toole was assigned to put together a conference to examine how to prevent another Columbine. And instead of just including researchers, psychologists, and detectives, like a typical crime conference... O'Toole thought,
2: Let's bring in the Columbine folks. Let's bring in also the teacher that knew the shooter. Let's bring in, if we have a survivor, we wanted people that knew these
0: students. The conference took place in July of 1999, just three months after the massacre.
2: I remember it as though I was there yesterday. There was about 125 of us, and I had not a clue how this would turn out. It was so emotional emotional for that five days that we were there because we had people that were shot by the shooter. They're crying, the audience is, I mean, it was hard. You can still see it's hard. These people had been through so much and they were trying to give us so much To understand what happened and I still remember we had to take breaks so people could cry oh my gosh you have no idea we brainstormed and we recorded everything that people said we wired up the rooms and then the responsibility fell on me afterwards to decode all of that and that was very difficult
0: O'Toole had to listen back to those recordings to decode what was said and translate those reflections into a report that might help stop would-be shooters. The groundbreaking report was called The School Shooter, A Threat Assessment Perspective. Its focus was not just on Columbine, but on the characteristics common among the few examples of school shooters that they could then find. Low tolerance for frustration, depression, narcissism, alienation... Lack of empathy, change of behaviors, access to weapons, and troubled family relationships. O'Toole emphasizes that one or two of these indicators does not a school shooter make. A bad day, a spell of depression, an inappropriate joke does not in and of itself merit alarm. But it's a portrait that emerges when all these factors are taken together of a person who may be at risk for committing violence. One of the other important findings of this report was something O'Toole called leakage.
2: Leakage is announcing in some way, some shape, some form,
0: what you're going to do. Think back to Nicole Schubert and the journal she found with her son's plan to commit a mass shooting. That's leakage.
2: I remember at the time people didn't like that term, but we found it in every case. And that was pre social media, pre internet. So the shooter would write something on a piece of paper or verbally tell somebody don't don't come to school today. In the Columbine case as an example, pre-internet and pre all the social media stuff, they tape recorded themselves in dress rehearsals and those tapes were left in in his bedroom and found by law enforcement after the shooting had occurred. They weren't posted, but then it was before all that was done. And so for me that's a
0: pretty compelling form of leakage. Why are these would-be murderers telling others about their plans to carry out a mass shooting?
2: That's such a great question. And my opinion on why they're doing it is because they're looking forward to it. They're proud of it. They want the attention. They're excited. They want to get the feedback. They want to scare people. So it's not one reason. It's I think it's a variety of reasons. And it's it's the antithesis of what you see in other criminal behavior. I mean, you don't do that if you're going to go rob a bank, right? (laughs) Hopefully you don't do that if you're going to rob a bank or steal a car. You do it stealthily. You try to, at least, and you try to do it so that you can get away with it. But that's not the case in these. And these crimes are very different crimes in terms of their motivation.
0: Today, it's an established part of the mass shooter narrative, the leakage that foreshadows their violence. The shooter did make statements before the attack on social media apps. And then all the recriminations and hang-wringing about what should have been done or could have been done with that information.
1: Handwritten words discovered in a notebook left behind in the car belonging to the shooter. What guns he needed and who he intended to target first. It's not just
2: one sign that tells you, oh my gosh, this person's going to go off the deep end. There's a culmination of events that happen that lead to this.
0: A perverse byproduct of the rise in mass shootings is that it's given investigators more and more useful information with which to draw a portrait of the typical killer. But back in 1999, there wasn't as much to go on. O'Toole's report became an important contribution to the emerging field of what's called threat management. This technique was developed, somewhat improbably, in Hollywood. In 1978, a security specialist named Gavin DeBecker founded a firm dedicated to protecting movie stars. DeBecker's roster of clients included Olivia Newton-John, Cher, and Madonna, who all contended with stalkers and even threats from rabid fans. By 1989, DeBecker had documented more than 5,000 people who'd made threats to his stars. He invented a screening system that examined pre-incident indicators that helped to filter out signals from noise and focus on those individuals whose threats needed to be taken most seriously. DeBecker came to believe that to protect his clients, it was more important to understand the process by which a person turns violent rather than getting too hung up on motive. DeBecco's framework came to the attention of the U.S. Marshals Service that does things like protecting federal judges. And today, threat management is a key tool used by the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, known as BAU. I first had the chance to visit the BAU a few years ago when I was doing research for a book on homegrown terrorists in the United States. After decades of investigating terrorism cases, this visit was an aha moment for me. I felt like I finally had a framework for understanding how a person goes from just nursing a grievance, the kinds of frustrations we all have, to carry out a violent act against innocent civilians. People used to think that when a mass shooting occurred, the person had just snapped. There was even a term for it back in the day, going postal, because there were a handful of postal workers who turned homicidal in the 80s and 90s. But as the field of threat management evolved, it became clear there are identifiable warning signs leading up to the moment that a mass shooter attacks. And if you know what those are, you might have a fighting chance to stop them. The FBI's Behavioural Analysis Unit is ground zero for this effort. They rarely allow reporters into their offices. We're in quantico. Let's go and have a look. We drove towards the FBI's main training facility in Quantico, Virginia. The BAU is nearby in a drab office building. Looks like Anywheresville, USA here. Completely nondescript, brown building, no signage. Hi, we're doing an interview with the BAU folks. Is this the right place? If you've ever watched TV shows like Criminal Minds,
4: Wow behavioral analysis unit. You work with Gideon?
0: You'll probably recognize the BAU. It's a section of the FBI that works on solving the most challenging criminal cases by analyzing the perpetrators. Uh, emotional indicators are analyzed through slants. The shooter maintains vertical, narrow-lettered writing, both signs of depression. They also use those profiles to stop potential criminals from acting in the first place. What, you think all we do is serial killers? Trust me. We cover the whole spectrum of psychos. We profile the DC sniper, the Unabomber, we do terrorist, arson But the real work of the BAU isn't terribly glamorous. We met with Carrie Gibson, a unit chief who's both a psychologist and an FBI special agent. You know, Criminal Minds, the show,
3: mm-hmm.
0: is that an accurate depiction of what you do here?
3: <laughs> so, it's kind of funny. <laughs>
0: I'm glad you're laughing.
3: <laughs> well, there's, I would say there's there's common themes... Um, But I do think they take some liberties.
0: Do you have a Learjet?
3: There is a Learjet in the FBI. However, I've never ridden on it.
0: (laughs) Gibson sure isn't taking any Learjets. Instead, when we met with her, she wheeled in a cart with the actual fruits of her labor. Stacks of thick case files.
3: So I have 13 of these that I brought today.
0: Those are all your personal case files?
3: Yep. I'm more of a, a tactical person. Other colleagues like the tablet and do that, but I I like the weight. (laughs) I like the the paper. I like to see that and grab it and touch it. (laughs) Oh, did you catch that? That's my life right there.
0: The BAU's files are full of cases, both of shootings that have already taken place and of potential shooters that they've had their eyes on. This episode is about mass shootings. Can they be prevented? Yes, they can. How?
3: From our perspective here at the Behaviour Analysis Unit, we work every day to prevent these attacks. I don't think the broader public gets to see what we see, but absolutely they can be prevented.
0: What they see from pouring through all those files are the similarities among mass shooters on what law enforcement calls the pathway to violence. It starts with a grievance.
3: They have a specific grievance along the lines of a slight or humiliation that has happened to them. And they can't move past it and it becomes very personal. These individuals start to think about how to resolve that grievance through violence.
0: What does that look like?
3: So they start to think what they would want to do to get justice for the injustice that has occurred to them. In that process, they aren't looking for other ways to resolve that more peacefully, like you or I would, because they lack those resources and that psychological armor to kind of process that. So they start to look at violence as the only way to resolve that grievance. Sometimes in that state of violent ideation, it starts with suicidality. The thoughts of, I hate myself, I hate my life, I hate that I'm here, I hate what's been done to me. And then it progresses to, wait a minute, I am in this spot because of what this person did to me or what this agency did to me. Therefore, I'm gonna make them pay for what they did to me.
0: The next step on the pathway to violence is researching what weapons or tactics might be used for the attack.
3: They learn from previous attackers in that process, and then it progresses to preparation, where now I know what I'm going to do. I have my plan. Now I have to go get the tools to do the attack. And then from there, it goes to breach, which is a dry run or security probe to make sure they're going to be successful, and then the attack. And so for us, we're constantly trying to evaluate where are they at on the pathway? Do I have movement from thought to action? Do I have key aspects I can intervene on right now to help slow that progression on the pathway.
0: The BAU has mental health experts and also agents who look at potential attackers from many angles. There are BAU analysts in all of the FBI's 56 field offices, a critical resource for local law enforcement who may know how to deal with a criminal but not how to deal with a would-be criminal.
3: There may be a person in their community that they're concerned about, and they're left with kind of, we don't know what to do with this case. A lot of times the challenge is, if you think about it from a police officer optic, there's an arrestable way to deal with calls of service, right? A lot of times these cases, there hasn't been any type of a law broken or a criminal violation yet. And so they're kind of stuck. And so rather than wait, for something to happen, we work with them to come up with more of a proactive mitigation strategy for that person.
0: So the BAU has a pretty good sense of the steps that lead to a mass shooting, which begs the question, well, let me have Gibson say it.
3: It does me no good to tell you this person's a high concern case and not tell you what to do with that.
0: I asked Gibson for an example of how exactly the behavioral analysis unit goes about getting people off the pathway to violence. She offered a case of a young man struggling with depression who was also suicidal. His parents were working hard to keep a roof over the family's head, and they weren't really in tune with their son's emotional struggles. The son began to fixate on school shooters, and he began to obsessively memorize the details of different cases.
3: He had come into contact with law enforcement related to being suicidal, and that law enforcement officer had been to one of our trainings and had thought, no, this kid knows way too much about this stuff. I'm concerned about him. So they called and, and then ultimately referred it into the BAU. So this person comes from a small town, limited resources that are right there, right? So anytime that He is suicidal or has to be hospitalized. It requires at least a two-hour commute to a larger city that has those resources. So in that situation, we looked at who are people in this community where if we were to do an individualized approach with them, how could we best kind of get him to a better spot? And the local sheriff in that town was somebody who had contact with the family, was very approachable. We talked about the concerns that we had for this young man and just really if we could get his family connected to him in a little bit more of an emotional way, if we could get his mental health needs met, then maybe there wouldn't be such a need to fixate on these other active shooter type topics.
0: As you might imagine, truly diverting someone who is already far down the pathway to violence is far from easy. For the sheriff in this case, it was much more complicated than making an arrest.
3: He started to talk with the the mom and dad. He started to talk to the young man and basically went into this mentoring role with the family. He helped with transport to help the family get him to where he needed to for his mental health appointments, even though there was long commutes, and consistently scheduled time with this young man to be able just to have discussion and thoughts and and conversation and make time for him, which was huge. He also then built bridges with the school to help them work with the young man in a way that was helpful versus punitive, and ultimately, all of that just layered to where that young man was able to you get his depression under control, help get the suicidal thoughts under control, graduate from high school, go on to college, and, and he's doing well today. But this is years in the making, where for a good two years, very strategic focus was put on him to help address those unmet needs that he was seeking.
0: Was he aware that you were involved in this?
3: No. So he was aware, obviously, the law enforcement entity from the local place where he lived was involved, but the family didn't know that we were kind of behind the scenes helping navigate that care and concern for their son. And
0: that was a, clearly a success. Yes. And you know, part of the frustrations perhaps of this job is when you're successful, you can't measure it because something didn't happen.
3: Correct, and I can't call up anybody and say, hey, guess what, we did a really good thing today.
0: Consider the scope of what the BAU and that sheriff were able to do for this young man. It required the cooperation of his parents, the school, an extraordinarily committed law enforcement officer, as well as a shift in attitude. They approached the young man as someone who was in pain, looking for connection and suffering from depression, who needed help rather than punishment.
3: I think a lot of people think there's no way the police could help. But what they don't understand is that Threat management is a huge tool in our toolbox, and now more than ever, law enforcement are being proactive in addressing things before they rise to a level of laws being broke.
0: Gibson repeatedly mentioned that this young man was suicidal, which isn't uncommon when it comes to mass shootings. It may seem counterintuitive, but the people killed in a shooting may be only part of what that murderer is after. They often plan to die in the attack, either by killing themselves or death by cop,
3: In our work, there's a very thin line between suicidality and homicidality. It starts with, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, I can't stand my life, I don't wanna be here anymore. And then that thought process starts to go to, wait a minute, I'm here because of this person. So I'm gonna make them suffer. That's your bridge to homicidality. I'm gonna make them suffer and then take myself out. And so we're constantly looking, if we can prevent the suicidality, then we prevent homicidality.
0: Are you religious?
3: Yeah. I would say I'm religious.
0: Do you ever think about the problem of evil with these perpetrators?
3: So I don't, I don't necessarily think about it in that way. I definitely would like to know, like, who has psychopathic characteristics, right? And I see evil connected to that. Um, I used to work in a prison. There's definitely psychopaths among us. I get it. Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, naive in that concept. We just don't see tons of that with everyday stuff that we're working with.
0: Most mass shooters do not suffer from serious psychiatric illness. But these are not healthy minds either. Many are depressed. There are other common characteristics. They're overwhelmingly male. In fact, a report by the nonprofit The Violence Project found that 98% of mass shooters were male. Many of them had suffered a painful loss of a loved one, a steady job, a partner, what the BAU calls a disappearing anchor, that can leave potential shooters adrift without people around them to notice concerning behavior. There's also a strong connection to domestic violence. This correlation had not yet been explored when Mary O'Toole wrote her report after Columbine. Now she says it's a key indicator on the pathway to violence.
2: When the case gets unraveled and you start to look at the background of the individual, there's either domestic violence in the family home or the home where the person is living or the person engages
0: in domestic violence. And many had developed an obsession with other school shootings, specifically Columbine. The FBI made a film about it to help educate the public about how to prevent school shootings.
3: The perpetrator struggled with anger, struggled with frustration. He had been hospitalized on several events because of wanting to harm others.
1: The mother talked about an incident when he pointed a loaded shotgun at her.
3: So Echoes of Columbine life. was a project that we did here out of BAU for that purpose of getting that word out to a larger audience outside of the law enforcement community. So it's really quite amazing how much Columbine is still there in these many years later. Why do you think that is? You know, it's really been romanticized. There's a young group of people that are very connected to that story. There's a lot of young people out there that are struggling, you know, and they're looking for answers and looking for solutions. That's obviously something that's very readily available. And then they find friends in those communities and, and they start to build connections in that way.
0: That was pre the internet, and or at least the internet as we know it today. Yeah. So how does that complicate things for you or make it easier? The fact that, you know, everybody can say anything to millions of other people and can find out immediately everything there is to know about Columbine within five minutes. How does that make your job easier or more difficult?
3: I do think that... The leakage has been a key concept to allow people to understand and to look for, because a lot of times it's just white noise and people aren't looking for it. But when we say, are they leaking any violent intent? Are they leaking any fixation on suicidality or homicidality or fixation on weapons? They will say, well, I don't know. I have to look at that. And we're like, yeah, well, look on social media, look, you know, school assignments, look at poetry, artwork, all of that.
0: Leakage becomes just a tragic part of evidence after the shooting, unless someone sees it early and intervenes. Andrea Fancher, an intelligence analyst who works with Gibson at the BAU, researches the role of people close to potential shooters, people the FBI calls bystanders. They are the most likely to see those social media posts or hear those alarming comments about other school shootings.
4: When we talk about bystanders, we're talking about overwhelmingly those peers and family members who are around an individual that do become aware of concerns before something bad happens. What makes it difficult is sometimes they're seeing these smaller changes that aren't kind of the glaring in-your-face, I want to go out and kill people or commit some sort of attack. They're seeing over time, maybe interests that are shifting. They used to be perhaps involved in sports or just spending time with friends or family members. And now they've got really protracted interests in this specific area, one being an interest in past attackers. They've also got a lot of mental health Struggles that they're dealing with, or financial stressors, or uh, just relationship kind of interpersonal problems that they're trying to navigate, problems at school or in the workplace, makes it really difficult for people to say, You're going to do something violent if there's not that overt threat.
0: So, how do you deal with First Amendment questions? And how do you deal with, okay, well, this is sort of just regular teenage angst of one kind or another versus somebody who might be a threat?
4: You know, you bring up a great point with First Amendment protections, because that's what our country is founded on, and that really is what makes bystanders so important. Law enforcement doesn't have the legal authority to be looking at everybody. We don't have the resources to do that, even if we had the authority. So we need those folks in the community who know others around them and know really what's normal for that particular person and know when things are shifting away from their norm.
0: Gibson acknowledges that if you check in with someone you think might be at risk, you may not get a straight answer.
3: People go to the offender first and say, I'm concerned about you. I'm seeing these violent drawings, this fixation on prior attackers. What can we do to help you? A predatory offender is not going to say, You got me. I've been planning to do a school attack. What they're going to say is, I'm good it's okay. They want you to go away and they want to be successful. And so that means that they will be covert. That means that they will lie to you. And so what we, what we train on, and it's very key in our work, is corroborate, right? So if somebody says to me, my mom's overreacting. I had a school project on Columbine and that's all I was doing. Go ask, is there a school project? Go ask mom, is this what you said? All of that
4: has to be done
0: What would you like to come out of this research?
4: I think the biggest point, if people hear nothing else from the research that we've done here, when a bystander becomes aware of information and does nothing, an individual is 16 times more likely to go on and commit an act of violence. Whether it's the more overt talk about actually committing an attack and people aren't acting on it, it's really, we think, perceived as almost permission by the individual.
0: I kept thinking back to that conversation with Nicole Schubert, who found her son's journal with that detailed plan for a shooting, a bystander at a crossroads.
1: I called a,
0: one of my best friends
1: and told her what I found, and she said, you need to call the police immediately. And I knew she was right, so I have contacted the police. What did you say? I told them what I had found. They came immediately and went through it and wait for him to get home from school. The cops sat down with him and uh, just uh, started questioning him about it. And from the get-go, he said that it was a creative writing assignment, which I thought was strange because he didn't have creative writing at the time.
0: Is it the hardest decision a mother can make?
1: No. Everybody asked me that but you know I don't think I hesitated at all. I don't really think I had much to think about. In this situation you you not only have to think about your child but others. There was so many other people involved or what could have been involved. It's not always about you, you know. I had to put myself in other people's shoes. You know you always hear about these things, but you always think Oh this won't happen to me or this this'll never be my kid. But it did, and it was.
0: Nicole may not have been familiar with the field of threat management, but she knew something was up with her son. There was a marked change in his behavior. Once a class clown type, he'd retreated into his room. And he was feeling the effect of disappearing anchors. A recent move and the loss of his grandmother. Speaking up can feel scary for the bystander. They may also feel like they're unfairly punishing the person they're reporting on, someone who hasn't yet committed a criminal act. But Gibson says people planning these attacks are often crying out for attention. When they don't find real-life connections, they go deeper down the rabbit holes online to feel like they're part of something even if that's something is a group that celebrates violence and mass murder. Raising an alarm can be a way of showing you care.
3: It sends a message, you matter. I care. Let's fix this. Versus, oh, so you're researching all the serial killers and all the active shooters. Oh, well, that's a nice hobby. I got to go, you know, do whatever. And it sends that kind of idea that you don't matter. You know, in the conversations we've had with offenders, they felt like, Nobody was really paying attention to them, like they were blending into the background, but they found solace with the people online who supported their views or encouraged them to be violent.
0: And Unfortunately, we were now in a situation where back in the day you might have had to go and meet somebody in person to sort of get encouragement. But now you you have a huge self-selected fan base on social media. That can kind of encourage you.
3: Right. Absolutely. And what we tell law enforcement officers and we're training them is that these type of people, those bystanders, like when they call in or they they make that hard decision of, I need law enforcement intervention here because I'm concerned. It's really life or death. Like in their mind, they're coming forward because they understand the gravity of the situation and they're concerned and we need to treat it as such. It's life or death situation versus... Okay, just in the queue, got to call in. Okay, let's get to that next week. No, like if if a parent or a friend calls in, we need to go now to talk with them.
0: I mean, it's very paradoxical because you're saying on a daily basis, you're preventing mass shootings. And yet at the same time, some mass shooters are getting through. And obviously, we're seeing a lot of mass shootings right now. I think this is a historic high. Is that sort of depressing for you? You come into work, you do all this good work, but yet so many people are still getting through?
3: For me, it's not discouraging as it is just kind of the reality of where we are today. We're all learning, right? And we're all trying to get to a better spot. Nobody wants this reality that we have right now. When I started here eight years ago, we were getting about 150 referrals in a year, Um, Now we're over 350 a year. We've been very successful in not having, you know, them result in violence.
0: I wanted to know what happens if they're referred a case from local law enforcement and it turns out they've gotten it wrong. What if the person suspected of being the next mass shooter wasn't planning to do anything at all?
3: We do get what I would call false positives, right? Where sometimes you might get a referral in and as you pull that thread, you realize, nope, There's not a fire here. For example, let's say you have a a case where it comes in. You had a play that's being written about a school attack. Okay, what else do we have? Okay, so he said that he's working on this project with friends. Okay, is that true? Let's go talk to friends. Yeah, and the friends corroborate what he says. Okay, then let's look at what's happening at school. What are any problems he's having? No, everything's great here. They're doing wonderful, good grades, involved in all these extracurricular activities. Okay, you zoom out right outside of that school, looking at the home life. Do you have somebody who has connected guardians that are in their life, um, or do you have incapable guardians? And if you find that you have capable guardianship, you have somebody who's well adjusted, you have somebody who deals with stress in an appropriate way, has these resources, sometimes it's just a school assignment. Now, not the best school assignment <laughs> or best choice, right? But a school assignment. We want to go about things in a very respectful way. One of the things we know from research, the ones that went on to commit the attacks experienced a humiliating event within two years of the attack. So now we know humiliation is huge.
0: A humiliating event, what is it? Is it loss of a job, death of a parent? And what are the sort of triggers?
3: I think a humiliating event would be more specific to some type of humiliation publicly for that individual.
0: We're talking about kids, juveniles at this point? Both. Both,
3: for both adults or juveniles. And so looking at... Was there some type of humiliating event that happened, um, making sure that we're not being humiliating in our interventions with them or our contact with them?
0: Well, that's absolute key. So how do you kind of manage this intervention so it isn't counterproductive?
3: So, for example, sometimes you'll get someone who will say, well, we should probably search that person before they come into the school because they could have a weapon. Okay. but. We're going to single that person out that could be humiliating right and so how are we going to go about that in a way that's respectful to that person and and still within policy of that institution there's still ways to be involved and interact with that person in a way that's respectful and not humiliating we don't become the grievance right law enforcement could easily become the grievance and that would be something that we would not want to do
0: right now you may be thinking about the cruel irony behind this episode the field of threat management has advanced significantly in the past decade since the FBI's Mary O'Toole wrote her seminal report on school shootings, and since Gavin De Becker created his framework for protecting his movie-style clientele. Meanwhile, mass shootings have ballooned, becoming a daily part of the news cycle. And it's very clear what makes the United States so horrifyingly exceptional when it comes to mass shootings. The United States is rife with guns there are more guns in the US than people. As someone who grew up in the UK, it's always been striking to me that you're around 50 times more likely to be killed by someone in the US with a gun than is the case in Britain. Without the American love affair with guns, there surely would be other forms of violence, but the fatalities of those events wouldn't compare. Threat management isn't some kind of magic solution. Mary O'Toole kept going back to one unifying feature in these tragedies. Access to weapons. You've mentioned that multiple times.
2: Yeah, but it goes overlooked. It goes overlooked so often that my son, my nephew, my neighbor, they have problems and they have access to weapons and the red bells don't go off. I find that still stunning.
0: Because if you only have access to a... You know, pen knife is a limit.
2: You can't do anything, really, with a penknife. I mean, you can't kill a dozen people. And I know it goes into, you know, a constitutional argument when people talk about weapons. But in in the world that I live in, I have tried, as, as my colleagues have tried over years and years and years, to push that pink elephant to the corner and it won't move.
0: Does that engender a sense of hopelessness?
2: my emotions have changed over the years with these cases sadness leads to anger originally it was horror when I saw Columbine I'm very angry that these cases continue
0: what's your advice to anybody who might be listening who has some family member who seems to be exhibiting behaviors that are Aberrational.
2: I think at this point, people that are listening might be rolling their eyes. And the reason that I say that, there are many family members. They know they've got a loved one that has the potential, and they have tried everything in the book, and nothing has helped. So they're listening to me, and they're thinking, she doesn't have a clue. I do have a clue. I, I, I understand that when you go and you seek out mental health intervention, there's not a lot out there right now. And so while we've made all of these advances in threat assessment, what can families do? The one thing I would say is this, whatever you do, if you are concerned, these cases cannot be carried out unless that loved one of yours has access to weapons.
0: And caring bystanders can help stop them from being carried out if they take the brave step of alerting authorities, just like Nicole Schubert did when she found her son's journal and his plans to attack his school. You've said it's important to mind your child's business, to stay in it. What do you mean?
1: Know what they're doing. Know where they are. Know where they're going. Know who they're around. It's our jobs as parents.
0: How are you doing today? I'm okay. How's your son doing?
1: He's doing no good overall. He hasn't been in any trouble since he has turned eighteen. He'll be twenty one in February. He has a job. He's finished high school. He wants to go to college.
0: <laughs> you saved him.
1: I believe I probably saved a lot. But you know sometimes your kids as bad as this may sound, are safer in jail.
0: (laughs) How do you feel now when you see stories in the news about school shootings? It breaks my heart. It's
1: something that should not even happen.
0: There's no doubt in your mind that he was going to go through with this?
1: I have doubts. I mean, only God knows. But if I wouldn't have said anything to prevent it and it did happen, I would never be able to forgive myself.
0: According to the BAU, if you are worried that someone you know may be on the pathway to violence, the most important thing you can do is tell someone you trust. Don't keep it to yourself. If you're interested in learning more, we recommend Mark Foreman's book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings, Dave Cullen's Columbine, Mary O'Toole's Dangerous Instincts, and Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy by Elizabeth Williamson. In the Room with Peter Bergen is an Audible original produced by Audible Studios and Fresh Produce Media. This episode was produced by Laura Tillman with help from Holly Demuth. Our executive producer is Alison Craiglow. Katie McMurrin is our technical director. Our staff also includes Eric German, Luke Cregan, Sandy Malera, and J.P. Swenson. Theme music is by Joel Picard. Our executive producers for Fresh Produce Media are Colin Moore, Jason Ross, and Joe Killian. Our head of development is Julian Ambler. Our head of production is Eleanor Bavietz. Eliza Lambert is our supervising producer. Maureen Trainer is our head of operations. Our production manager is Hermenio Ochoa. Our production coordinator is Henry Koch. And our delivery coordinator is Anna Paula Martinez. Audible's chief content officer is Rachel Giazza. Head of Content Acquisition and Development and Partnerships, Pat Shah. Special thanks to Marlon Calby, Allison Weber, and Vanessa Harris. Copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC.